Welcome back to Alpi Parsha Podcast, your weekly Torah portion podcast. Each week, we will do a light dive into this week's Parsha. We'll zoom in on a passage that catches our eye, and we'll connect it back to Judaism and our own lives. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Suleika, and as always, I'm joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Glad to be here again with you, Paul. Good to see you, Aaron. I know you learned something about our podcast statistics this week, didn't you? What what our most popular episode was? <laughs> yeah, I was just sharing with Paul that Parshat Shmini from a few weeks ago was by far our most listened to podcast. Double digits? <laughs> Even d- double digits. Wow. So uh, we broke the, not the sound barrier, but the 10 barrier. So. Mm-hmm. More than a minion of listens. Yeah, more than a minion of listens. That's really, you know, an important thing to go for. Uh, and how are you? How's your week been? I know actually we spent Shabbat together. Me and Aaron went to a synagogue mm-hmm. together. Uh, as we've done, you've heard us say before. So that was... Uh, yeah, but maybe it's nice to report on our synagogue experiences, especially because I identify as a shul hopper. Uh, and I think both you and I go to various different shuls. So we experience different different things and it's a different experience every time. So maybe I can share a little bit. This is my first time going to uh, a synagogue out in the East End, the Danforth Jewish Circle. Mm-hmm. And it was so lovely. I really enjoyed it. What was lovely about it for you? Um, lots of pieces. I was there in part because it was one of my B mitzvah students uh, who I'd been tutoring, uh, was having her B mitzvah. So it was, Nice to see all of her hard work being shared with family and friends. Uh, But the service just felt like connective and meaningful and short and manageable. Uh, It was in a more progressive style, which is to say that we didn't do all of the Hebrew reading. That sometimes is what I'm used to. But I felt like better able to focus and connect with the flow of davening in a certain way. Yeah, it was really beautiful service. And uh, I do really enjoy the rabbi. I think she's fantastic. It's funny to kind of... Um, Shout out Rabbi Elise Glickman. Yeah, she's fantastic. I've, she's I've always thought so since I met her two months ago. Um, <laughs> a long That's because now she's your local East End rabbi. That's true. One, one of three, I guess. Uh, no, two. We have two out here. Two shows with a rabbi, one I think without a rabbi. Hmm. Um, what's funny you say, kind of identifying as a shul hopper, that's kind of true for me this year and last year, but I don't want it to be. I really don't want to be a hopper. I really want to, like, over the next few years, really ease into a community where I can, like, you know, if I have kids, Bezrat Hashem, to kind of put them in there. But, you know, I guess this is an. A normal phase, you know, as we're between things. But, you know, Danforth Jewish Circle could easily be, it seems like, I feel like we're doing a commercial for them. It seems like they've got programming for kids. They've got programming for adults. It's accessible. It's inclusive. Great music. Um, can't say enough yeah. things. It could be a place for you to settle into. Yeah. And I hear that, like, feeling of wanting to be, find the community where you can really invest. And I think that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's in part that I just didn't grow up that way. Like my family just went to different synagogues my whole life. So for me, I feel like that's what going to synagogue is. You don't 
belong anywhere. You're just like, go and experience different things in different places. So I have that model in my mind a little bit. How will this work with me becoming a rabbi? Won't I need to choose a community to focus on? I'm not sure. I'll have to see how, see how it goes. What's it? Well, I guess your family was ahead of the curve because I always thought like synagogue hopping was like a recent phenomenon. It's something people just recently are a little bit more um, mobile. So they're hopping around. But I guess you guys were, uh, plus you grew up in Thornhill, right? Which for those of you who don't know, is the most Jewish suburb of Toronto. Um, although technically it spans yeah. two towns. That's for another episode. Uh, Markham mm-hmm. and Vaughn. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I know, you know, Aaron, you, I guess you yourself kind of run a synagogue, right? And actual, like, uh, just, I guess, yeah. thinking, do you get reflections on your own practice when you visit other synagogues? Definitely makes me think about how we could do things differently at Annexual, things that I appreciate about how I might do things on my own or with that community where I feel like I have more leadership and input. And there is, Annexual doesn't meet every Shabbat and it's sort of on purpose set up like this, that we're part of an ecosystem of other downtown communities. So I do like that, Um, but I wonder, I wonder about the ideal and I just feel like we also need new synagogue models generally, like the big institution, institutional buildings. I think that it's not like working the way it was for our parents' generation. Like I see it happening. In Toronto, it feels like there's this upcoming thing where we have, there's a lot of large conservative synagogues and they're like really big buildings. And a lot of them are like either merging or folding. It seems like there's shifts happening that it's things are set up in a certain way that's not going to continue forward and we need to like rethink it. Um yeah, so you know, there's change ahead. I, I agree with you. Like I've always, I think we've talked about this years ago, like the idea of the the minion model where each mega shul um, mm-hmm. would have a bunch of minion within it. And um, I know one of the minions in Toronto that you and I both frequented, they're now kind of permanently inside a mega shul. And I just think that's so practical. Like I know there was a lot of back and forth about it. Like I, I'm on their mailing list. But I was like, oh, that's so great that they have this infrastructure uh, of the mega shul and they have their own minion that has its own sense of community. Um, So maybe that's one way to go. Like, uh, I definitely think like because of the similarities and iconoclasticism, I think maybe mosques and synagogues could share more space Mm -hmm. because it's less, at least according to Maimonides, I think it's a little bit more uh, kind of flexible to have that be a shared space. If I that would be so cool. Yeah. So like, that's something I would kind of, um, of course, nothing against Christianity, just some versions of Christianity tend to use icons, which uh, are verboten mm-hmm. or Jews and Muslims. Um, so just. That's I think thinking of new ways of sharing space feels great, like with other inside of a shul with lots of different minions or between religious groups. I think more of that is probably in our Jewish community's future. 
So we'll see how it all plays out. And speaking of the future. I, yeah, like what's the transition to our Parsha? Uh, the future, yes. Of Emor. And which, what does Emor mean? Uh, Emor means say, basically. It's one of these titles that doesn't mean much on its own. It's f- from a line where God says, say unto Moses and Aaron, or maybe just Aaron, I forget who, uh, but it's just that the conjugation of say. So oh, it doesn't really give much information on its own. I'm just not familiar with this word. It's like the the present masculine of to say. Yeah, of le'emor. Uh, I wonder where this comes up. Like I, I don't think I've heard it like uh, in my limited modern Hebrew and my limited biblical Hebrew. I don't think I've heard it like uh, I can imagine like Debor or uh, uh, yeah, things like that. But emor, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's basically a synonym of daber, uh, which is usually the language that's used, and definitely the commentators be, oh well, well what what does it mean when they use emor instead of daber? But they more or less mean the same thing. There's no difference in like there's no slight distinction in the or, way. You're- yeah, it's the difference between saying and speaking. It's like say unto this person or speak these words to this person. There is some slight difference, uh, but I don't know. I'm not sure what it's, I don't know in the shot level what it's getting at. Now I'm like, what are those, what's the difference in English? I'm like, I can't even describe it. Between saying and but speaking. I think it would be good for you to say more. Uh, a one minute summary. Though, Let me say a one minute summary. Yes. Get into it. I'll put mm-hmm. on my timer. There's a lot happening here. So let's see how you do. Yeah. Will you give me a countdown? Three, two, one. So we start off with uh, hearing about the laws for the priests, for the Kohanim, who we've been discussing a little bit more, uh, about how they're supposed to behave, who they're allowed to marry, what the high priest is allowed to do. Uh, We also hear about what sort of afflictions or things might disqualify a Kohen or a priest from service. Um, We also hear about what things disqualify an animal from being included in a sacrifice. And then there's a section that goes into the different holidays. We hear about Shabbat, we hear about Pesach, we hear about Shavuot. We also hear about the holidays that happen in the seventh month also known as Tishrei, as we discussed last time, like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the holiday of Sukkot. Um, And then there's... That's it. Oh, no. (laughs) What would (laughs) you get to all of it? But that's that's the challenge of the one-minute summary. Yeah, exactly. I think the things you... I'm just trying to see what you would have missed here. Uh, The menorah, showbread, blasphemy, murder, property. (laughs) Um, but you know, those are kind of afterthoughts anyways, I'm sure. Uh, so I had a couple different kind of passages that, I mean, one thing I appreciate about this mm-hmm. Parsha compared to last week's Parsha, remember last week, it alluded to what we now call Yom Kippur, but felt anachronistic to me. Yeah. This week does not seem anachronistic. It seems to be describing proto Passover 
like pretty <laughs> obviously for one. Like, um, yeah. so that's not like uh, ambiguous to me, but there's just two lines. Uh, I don't know which one to pick, but I'm going to actually then, Aaron, why don't we take a look at chapter 23, verse 22. If you want to do the Hebrew, then I'll do the English. Great. Uve kutzrechem et ketzir arzechem, lo techale peat sadcha bekutzrecha, veleket ketzircha, lo telaket, le ani, velager taazovotam, ani adonai elohechem. I didn't hear any cantillation, but still pretty good. Oh, shall we do a cantillation <laughs> next time? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, and in English, it is, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not completely remove the corn of your field during your harvesting. And you shall not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. Rather, you shall leave these for the poor person and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. Mm. Um, so I know this wasn't in any of our summaries, but I feel like this is such a significant passage. And I feel like I've read about this in the Talmud, this passage. I feel like this comes up a lot. Um, or things related to this concept. Yeah. Or like, is there any parts of concept? your field? Is there a word for this? So uh, this is mentioning two different customs of pea, which is leaving the corners of your field, and leket, which is, uh, I think, you if you you should leave things that you drop, but they're both like leaving parts of your field that you harvest. Uh, there might be some term that's broader to discuss this kind of tzedakah, this kind of charity that's given to those in need, that's connected to agricultural rules, but. I just remember the story because this comes up, I guess, I think in the book of Ruth, right? Where Ruth is mm. leaning the corners and Boaz sees yeah. her. Exactly. Uh, so I guess just a few things I really liked about also the concept in this is, um, I guess, first of all, that it's a very kind of uh, subtle form of charity. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just like, hey, this is for you. And there's a very obvious power dynamic. It's just kind of like, oh, you know. Some of these corners, there we didn't pick up the wheat sheaths or what have you. And if someone were to find them, you know, it's their gain. So, like, uh, I thought that was kind of a nice aspect of it. This sort of uh, very, I, who who was the philosopher who says like the best way to give charity? It's like a Jewish philosopher is like you're not supposed to be a braggart about it. What am I thinking of? Mm. I'm not sure. It sounds like Maimonides. We mentioned before. Yeah, it's different like levels of the best ways to give staka. But yeah, this feels like a modest, like, right? You don't interact directly with the person. You like let them go when works for them. It is a subtle and kind way to do it. It also sort of reminded me in a more like lighthearted way, too. Like, um, I don't know if this happens to you and you're kind of extended family this happens mm. this happens with my immediate family not so much with my in-laws where like um people never want to finish the last of something like mm. the last pizza slice the last piece of cake and i know yes. like, kind of the the nice aspect of it is um 
you don't want it to end for someone else. Like someone else should get the pleasure of this. But then the trade-off is that's kind of this shrine to this enjoyment that no one's having. You know, it's almost kind of a this this Canadian standoff of sorts. Like I know probably do in America too. Um and yes, probably a and, lot of single countries. And my spouse's camp, they call this game where they make it into a game called Capitalist Pig. It's a socialist camp. And so whoever eats the last bite of something is the capitalist pig. So everybody tries to not eat the last bite. And then they like take smaller and smaller bites trying to not be the last person <laughs> to leave something behind. Where's <laughs> that? taking so it a bit farther. Like, um, I remember my parents telling me some sort of story. I forget which direction this rule goes to. Where like, um, my, my, it must have been in France because that's the only other place my parents have lived. Or Spain. They lived in France and Spain. Um, there is some culture, and I don't remember which one, where if you finish all the food, it means you want more. Mm. Um, so I remember them saying that they, the opposite of the previous version, like they ate all the food and the family's like, great. And they bring more. And they're like, oh, okay. So they go <laughs> again. They're like, great. I'll bring more. And then in this specific culture, either Spain or France, maybe someone could write it and tell us you're, you're supposed to leave a bit of food to show mm. I'm satiated. Um, so I just think it's kind of funny how kind of either direction, this idea of kind of, leaving things can go. Yeah, that's different. It's interesting to think about different cultures around it. This section also makes me think of something that I really appreciate reading the book of Leviticus, uh, which is its associative connections that I think I pick up on more as we go through it every week. Um, which when it talks about here of leaving the corners of the field, to me, it harkens back to the laws for the priests where you're supposed to leave and I think it uses the same word pa the corners of the face but you're not supposed to shave the corners of the face you're not supposed to shave or trim the corners of your field right there's some interesting like connection that's going on here don't this exactly know what to comes from, like this passage uh-huh. uh, so not this not this passage but this word pa right payus is the same word it's like the Ashkenazi accent, peyot. Oh yeah, or peyot, uh, the more standard. But I was like, I thought you meant at first that like, this is where we got the interpre- interpretation for peyot. Like if we're not going to cut the corners of our fields, we're certainly not going to trim our, I don't even know what you call this in non-Hebrew English. Like what is this? Sideburns. That's your, your sideburns. Your sideburns. Your sideburns need to grow out, I see. Uh, <laughs> in traditional uh, circles. Right, uh, and so that's for all beard growing people and in our parsha it happened to mention it for the priests in particular um but i feel like that just to like rip off riff off of it a bit and also to mention that this like appreciation for associative thinking in the book of leviticus i learned from my teacher rabbi natan margalit who helped me start to appreciate leviticus in a deeper way including in noticing this different way of thinking i felt it in other ways in the Parsha too, right? This connection between human and earth customs of leaving the corners. But I feel like also in other ways, I was feeling it like we were discussing, there's some things that make a priest not fit to do their service and things that make an animal not fit to be part of a service, 
uh, or a sacrifice. It feels like there's also some connection between the human and animal world that are there in those juxtapositions. And then also things that come up other where, other places in the Torah, but I feel like there's this seven plus eight like pattern of there's this it mentioned also with the sacrifices that you need to leave an animal with its mother for seven seven days, and then on the eighth day you can sacrifice it. But then there's also this thing about Sukkot and Shemini, what we now call Shemini Atzeret, is you have it, you have this holiday for seven days, and then on the eighth day there's something special that happens. There's also the, this like way of thinking in sevens, also talking about not shaving beards. It's the Omer period that comes up in the Parsha too, where there's a custom, a later rabbinic custom to not shave, but you also count seven weeks. And then after seven weeks, there's something else that happens. So I don't know what to make of all of these connections, but it feels like there's this way of thinking that applies to humans and to animals and to the land and to counting time uh, that I find interesting, that I'm curious to keep exploring as I keep deepening and learning about I mean, the book of Leviticus. We live our lives in kind of associative ways. Like, uh, I know I mentioned in a previous episode, um, but it, I'll just mention it again that I remember recording my mother-in-law's family, like life story on, on a mm -hmm. video and uh, you can't help but be associative and kind of go off on tangents. Like this reminds me of this and this and this, and then you try to bring them back. Um, it's actually probably very unnatural to speak in a linear way. Uh, and similarly, I had a person who retired on my team a month ago, and I tried to like get a lot of recordings of her talking about what she does for work so I could use as a training manual. But even for kind of training, even that could be associative. Like, oh, this is how we hire this person. Which reminds me that don't forget that this date's coming up and that date's important because it changes. Mm -hmm. Like we can't help yeah. but be associative. So, um, yeah, this for sure. Be, and how we talk. Yeah, exactly. But there's a way in which we, we don't value that, right? We want to edit the recording into like a manual that feels more linear in a certain way. But whoever edited the book of Leviticus didn't. Well, there's probably some places they did and some places they didn't. There's some valuing, I think, of this way of thinking that's coming across. It's a little bit strange for us to relate to. But I think it's interesting. Yeah, it could be kind of a connection maybe to a previous oral tradition that this was a part mm -hmm. of that was more associative and then comes back to, you know, translated to writing and then codified in writing. Um, totally. Yeah, like I just feel like there's... It's very Leviticus. You think of it as kind of this dry book of the Tanakh. But I feel like these past few weeks, there's been so many meaty things about Jewish practices in here that, uh, you know, there's a lot to say, a lot to mm -hmm. eat more about this. Uh -huh. <laughs> and yeah. like we said, you know, conversation is associative. And we've seen these kind of associations that you're talking about, these connections to different things, everything from our face being like a field and not cutting the corners to the field itself being a place where we don't cut corners and how we don't have blemishes on animals. And there's other things we don't have blemishes on. Like it's about association between all things, that kind of connectedness and that connection between all of these tangents and meanings and ideas. So kind of a, a beautiful meta idea that I didn't originally think of when we started talking about it, but we kind of realized it through this conversation that so we are the associations of our spoken conversation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that kind of, summarizes a little bit of the 
what we learned. It's kind of like meta research, meaning research about research. This is like meta learning, like learning about learning in a sense, like mm -hmm. this associative sense. So that's something I'm going to kind of mull on, I think, for the rest of the week for sure. Um, and I think okay. that's a nice place to kind of end it. So I'll kind of say that we're slowly signing off with me as Paul Saleka and... And me as Aaron Rotenberg. Have a great week, friends. Mm -hmm.